Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to a very special anniversary episode of You Must Remember This, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and today I'm coming to you from my home in Los Angeles, as I always am, but without a script. This podcast turned one year old on April 2nd, and as a way of celebrating, about three weeks ago, I asked our listeners to send me questions via calling into a Google voice number or sending me emails. And today I'm going to answer a bunch of those questions. I'm going to try to get to about 10, I think. Um, I'm going to answer every question that I got via the Google voicemail, um, although a couple of people requested that I not play their audio, so I will answer those without playing their audio. Um, And then I'm going to answer a few questions that came to me via email, basically picked at random, If I don't get your question today, feel free to ask me on Twitter. Of course, on Twitter, uh, I'm a little bit limited in terms of the depth in which I can answer, but I will do my best to tell you everything you want to know. Before I get started, I just want to thank everyone who's been listening, whether you came in a year ago or have found the podcast over time. Um, I've said this before in interviews, but I really didn't know if this podcast was going to work when I started it. I started it out of creative frustration and was really only trying to please myself in the beginning. Um, And still, I still, still, I am primarily motivated um, by wanting to learn things and wanting to share them with you. Um, So it's just really exciting for me that anybody listens and that anybody likes it. Um, And I hope that I can continue to make something that people want to listen to and that makes them happy because it makes me happy to do it. Okay, um, and Mushinas, let's get started. Kurt from New York asks... Hello, my name 
was uh, Kurt um, from New York, big fan of the show. Quick question, just wondering how long does it take you to assemble each episode, and what have been your favorite or primary sources for the show? Do you do mainly internet research, combination of books and magazine articles? Um, I'd love to hear your response. Thank you. So I have to say that this varies from episode to episode, um, but generally I plan out what I'm going to do a few weeks in advance, if not a few months in advance. Um, For instance, the Star Wars series, I planned out what the first seven episodes would be about actresses, and then I knew vaguely that I wanted to do some episodes about actors and men in the film industry, um, but I didn't start planning those out until I was almost until I had almost run out of actresses that I had planned to work on. But um, because I have to produce an episode almost every week, um, I don't have a lot of time within the week before an episode comes out, which is the production week, to do the research. So I'm generally researching a few episodes ahead and researching several episodes simultaneously. Um, I try to read whole, I try to read entire books as much as possible. Um, of course, there's only so much time and there's only so much I can do. Um, but generally, I just I try to contain my question about whatever the subject is so that I can find out everything about a specific period in time or a specific film or a specific issue in this person's life. And that makes it a little bit more manageable. And then in terms of some of my favorite sources, um, again, for these recent episodes about World War II, I was heavily inspired by a book called City of Nets by Otto Friedrich, um, which is a a book about the 1940s in Hollywood. Um, Each chapter is about a specific year from 1939 through the end of the decade. Um, And it does an incredible job of showing how different people's stories are woven together and um, depicting Hollywood and the film industry as a community. Um, And it just makes me really excited every time I go through it to find out more about every story that he tells in sort of vignette form. So thank you, Kurt. I hope that answers your question. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move on to Steve. Hey, Karina. This is Steve Newman. I'm a digital producer at Infinite Guest, a division of American Public Media. I'm calling for your um, Ask Me Anything, or you must remember this. Um, Love the podcast, by the way. Um, My question is, do you think 2015 will be the year that Clayton Kershaw's regular season dominance translates into the postseason. I'll hang up and listen. So um, some of you may not know that I have I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and I've been a Los Angeles Dodgers fan for all of my life. And um, I'm actually pretty obsessed with baseball and with uh, my team in general. So for those of you who do not know, Clayton Kershaw is the top pitcher on the Los Angeles Dodgers. By some estimates, he is the top pitcher in baseball. But over the past two years, the Dodgers have made it into the playoffs. They've made it into the postseason. And 
both years, there have been these games where Clayton Kershaw, who during the regular season is pretty consistently phenomenal. Um, He has these crazy statistics of, you know, under two ERA, which for those of you who don't know anything about baseball is really good. Um, And, you know, like last year during the regular season, he gave up, I think, exactly one home run by using his curveball. But in the postseason, he chokes. So this has happened two years in a row and both times against the St. Louis Cardinals, um, about which, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Um, So the question is, will this happen again or will will he finally get over it? And I... I don't want to completely rip off Molly Knight, who I listened to on the Effectively Wild baseball podcast a few days ago, um, but what she said was something that I hope is true, um, which is that Kershaw is such an emotional pitcher, and he's clearly so angry and so upset with himself for letting the team down these two years in a row that he might just like try to like learn a whole new pitch in order to make sure this never happens again. Um, so I, I hope that anger motivates him. I know that anger and frustration motivate me, but I have to say that it is a little bit of a nail-biting time to be a Dodger fan because in the 100-something year history of the team, they've never been to the playoffs more than two years in a row. So this w- if they make it this year, it would be the third year in a row. And, you know... Um, my good friend, Brendan Lott, who I've been friends with, uh, for over 10 years, we went to college together. Um, he happens to be a San Francisco Giants fan, which means he's my enemy. Um, but he always says that like, if you have like a cheery disposition about your baseball team, you're not a real fan. Um, real fans expect the worst and hope for the best. So that's, uh, that's my outlook going into the 2015 baseball season, which will be, I think, two days old by the time you're listening to this. Okay, let's move on. Let's answer a question that came in via email. This email is from Michael Painter. He writes, This is Michael Painter emailing you a message. I would call, but I'm shy. That's all right, Michael. I understand. I'm shy too. For your anniversary of this wonderful podcast, I did have a few questions. One, what are your favorite foreign films? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, So I'm one of those people who had sort of a conversion experience um, in my late teens, early 20s in art school when I was first exposed to films by, you know, Godard and uh, Antonioni. Um, I think that I genuinely enjoy Michelangelo Antonioni films more than anyone I've ever met. Um, and the the first film of his I saw was Blow Up, um, but then I just became fascinated and I went back. And I mean, I, I think so many of his films are incredible. Um, Red Desert was extremely important to me when I was about 19 years old and I was thinking a lot about the um, the differences and similarities between cinema and painting. And I was really fascinated by the way that Antonioni approached making a color film and how he brought in like literal painterly aspects into the idea of, of telling a story. Um, so that's, you know, 
that's one area. Um, Godar also was extremely important to me, particularly um, the Anna Karina films like Piero Lefou. Um, and also, even I mean, Breathless. I have a poster of Breathless on the wall of my office. Um, the only movie posters I have up on the wall of my office are Breathless and the Judy Garland A Star is Born. So take that for what what you will. Um, and then also the films of Chris Marker. Um, I guess like everybody, the first one I saw was La Jetée. Then when I was, I was basically studying um, experimental nonfiction cinema as an undergraduate and um, movies like Sans Soleil and The Last Bolshevik. Um, and uh, I'm forgetting the name of the 60s protest movie he made because there's there's a, a grin without a cat. And then there's um, the movie he made later. But all Chris Marker um, was really important for me. Um, so I have to say, I have to admit, I guess, that I have kind of a blind spot when it comes to Asian cinema. Um, I, you know, I've seen some of the basic stuff, Kurosawa, etc., cetera, but um, there are huge gaps in my knowledge. So that's something for me to work on, um, and South American cinema as well. So I, um, I know a lot about the history of Hollywood, <laughs> um, but I am not as well-versed in a lot of world cinemas as I'd like to be and as I hope to be over time. And in terms of recent foreign language films, um, I'm honestly a little bit out of the loop because I haven't been going to film festivals over the past couple of years. Um, but I am really uh, admiring of what's going on in Greece um, with the films of Yorgos Lanthimos, like Dogtooth, um, and uh, his producer on that film, um, Athena Rahil Sangari made a film called Addenburgh, which is really one of my favorite films of the past 10 years. I really suggest people seek that out. And um, despite what I just said about my blind spot for Asian cinema, um, the films of the Korean filmmaker Hong Sang-soo um, are big favorites of mine over the, over the past decade or so. So check all of those out. Uh, Michael has a few more questions. Let's see. Uh, number two, do you see another group of future episodes having a unifying theme like Star Wars? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's sort of easier for me to wrap my head around um, a series rather than just one-off episodes. Um, and it's a little bit easier for me to kind of like do the pre-research and then for each individual episode, like dive deep on things that I already know are interesting. So there will be another series coming up. Um, once we finish the Star Wars series in a couple of weeks, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off. And then there's going to be a series that I do not want to tell you the subject of. Um, but generally, it's going to be about Los Angeles in the late 1960s. Um, and then I'm kind of open as to what happens after that. I have a lot of ideas and there are a lot of ideas in our forum that people have submitted that I want to go through um, and try to put something together based on that. Um, so we'll see what happens. And question number three for Michael, are there any essential movie star biographies that you recommend for anyone interested to learn about working in Hollywood? Um, Yes, I well, okay. My f two favorite movie star biographies are Love is Nothing, which is about Ava Gardner and it was written by Lee Server, and Get Happy by Gerald Clark about Judy Garland. Um, and I think the Judy Garland one is very good in terms of talking about the sort of conditions of being a woman in Hollywood, being a child actress, um, what it was like sort of interacting with moguls and um, directors and all of that. Um, it is really a snapshot of 
of the changes in Hollywood, um, basically like during the golden era and then as television comes in and all of that. So that's definitely something where it's, it's about Judy Garland, but it's also, um, kind of a, you know, putting a lens on the larger culture. Another book that does that really well is If This Was Happiness, a biography of Rita Hayworth by Barbara Leeming. Um, that was definitely a big uh, resource for me in the um, in the episode about Rita Hayworth that we did a few weeks ago. Um, but, you know, I think that most movie star biographies are maybe not the best uh, ways to find out what it's actually like to work in Hollywood. Um, because I mean, we talk about this all the time on the podcast, but, um, oftentimes even things that per like portend to pull back the curtain are one person's point of view, or it's a very specifically spun version of the story. Um, so even first person accounts, you kind of have to take not with a grain of salt, but um, you have to be an active, engaged reader of anything about Hollywood. I mean, really anything about anything. Um, the more I do this, uh, the more I am, I think, productively skeptical of anything that I read. So thank you, Michael. Those were really good questions. Okay, so now we're going to answer a question from Mason. Um Mason left a voicemail, um, but it cuts off. And so after it cuts off, I'm going to read uh, an email that he sent me. Hey, uh, this is Mason McGuire. I'm a uh, college student in Chicago. I've been listening to the podcast almost since its uh, beginning, after it was covered on an AV Club podcast around uh, May or so last year. And since then, it's become the only podcast that I really recommend to people, especially those interested in any aspect of film. Um my question today uh, regards my favorite episode, uh, which is about uh, Star Wars and um, the Caroline Clark Gable one specifically. Uh, the most emotional moment of the show so far and the one that uh, I think really speaks volumes is the uh, moment where Karina starts to break down when describing how um, Carol Lombard's... And, um, okay, so Mason continues via email... Was that your first take, or did that come after multiple attempts? Thanks for the great show. It's an essential part of my week. You're welcome, Mason. Thank you for listening. Um, that was my first take, my first and only take. Um, I uh, I don't know. I would not I would not know where to start to try to uh, cry on cue intentionally or to um, like gear myself up to. Uh, having that kind of emotion, um, that kind of emotion just came out. Um, I, I don't know why, but that story really resonates with me a lot. Um, and to the point where sometimes even just thinking about that episode, um, and thinking about this idea of Clark Gable sitting alone in a hotel room drinking and knowing that his wife is dead, but, um, refusing to believe it until somebody brings him back proof. It just, it just gets me. Um, it's just like the saddest thing that I can imagine. Um, it's not the saddest thing I can imagine, but in the context of all of these things that we talk about, um, where there's, you know, so much of people kind of abusing their power and their privilege and, um, you know, making mistakes out of good intentions or bad, 
just that kind of like basic human experience um, is really startling and really touching. So, um, and you know, I have to be honest, when I was recording that episode, I was actually in a rush. I had to go somewhere. I had to meet somebody. Um, and so I was not going to really have time to do a second take that day anyway. Um, it did not occur to me to try to re-record it after I cried while I was recording it the first time because, um, you know, it it just was honest. And um, the best I can do is is try to give you guys some kind of truth. Um, and uh, that was me being truthful about how I felt about that story. So thank you, Mason. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed the podcast. And I'm glad that uh, that thing that was emotional for me was also emotional for you. Let's move on to the next question. Okay, here's an email question from Ben H. He writes, The Criterion Collection obviously preserves a lot of pretty cool movies, though they certainly have their blind spots. Lots of Japanese and French cinema, but not a whole lot of Hollywood from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. If you had magical powers over what films from that era would get the super special Criterion Collection preservation treatment, what would they be? Okay, I'm going to preface this by saying that I... I'm not the best person to ask about this because I don't buy DVDs. Um, I just, I've kind of given up on having any kind of physical media except for books because I, I need to have too many books. Um, so it's, I never, um, you know, go out of my way to pick up like a beautiful Criterion collection copy of something, even though I think they do amazing work and it's almost difficult to critique them, um, just because it's, um, it's just not my thing. But I, you know, occasionally like when I'm doing research for an episode, I will go to my local video store, Video Journeys in Silver Lake, California, and I will, um, get, you know, the best version of any film that I can find. And if it's a criterion, I watch all the documentaries and I get really into it. So I'm going to name from each the 30s, 40s, and 50s films um, that I watched uh, for the first time. Actually, no, not for the first time. Films that I watched for this podcast that I was not able to get a nice, beautiful DVD of. Um, And they're all films that I feel like deserve a restoration and um, would provide ample material for behind-the-scenes stuff and documentaries and essays and on and on and on. So for the 1930s, I'm going to say Nothing Sacred, the William Wellman film produced by David O. Selznick, written by Ben Hecht, um, and starring Carol Lombard and Frederick March. I was not very familiar with Carol Lombard's films before I made that podcast. Um, I knew who she was, but I hadn't really watched a ton of stuff in her filmography. And so this was a great discovery for me when I was making that episode. Um, I just think it's a super cool, really weird movie, and it's Technicolor, um, and the version of it that you can get on various streaming sites it looks like it's colorized, but I know that it isn't, and so I would really love to see a preserved version of it um, that makes the color look how it's supposed to look or how it was intended to look. Um, for the 1940s, I'm going to say A Foreign Affair, the Billy Wilder film with Marlena Dietrich and Jean Arthur. Um, I incorrectly said in my podcast about Marlena Dietrich that A Foreign Affair is not available on DVD. I was not able to find it. Um, 
when I was doing this episode and also previous to that. But one of our listeners, Joseph Andrews, wrote in to say that it is available. There's a version that TCM actually released in 2013, and it's on Amazon. Um, It looks to be pretty no frills, um, but at least it is available for people to see. Um, You know, I saw it at a repertory house in Paris a few years ago, and then when I was doing this episode, I went to my local video store where they only had it on VHS. So, um, you know, I, that's a, it's a fascinating movie, as I talk about in the episode. There's a lot of interesting historical stuff. Um, and, you know, I hope that Billy Wilder and Marlena Dietrich are evergreen enough in terms of interest that they hold for cinephiles so that there would be, you know, so that it would make sense for somebody to put that movie out in a really nice expanded edition. But, uh, you know, you can only hope. And then for the 50s, um, I guess I probably should say Raintree Country or Raintree County, um, which is the Elizabeth Taylor Montgomery Clift film um, that I talk about in the episode. It's the one that they were shooting when Clift got into the car accident in which his face um, was changed. And uh, it's not available on DVD as far as I know. I certainly couldn't find it. It, Again, it was another film that I watched on VHS when working on the episode. Um, But I honestly don't think that movie is very good. It is kind of a crime that it's not readily available on DVD just because both of those actors have important legacies. Um, But I'm not sure it necessarily deserves the criterion treatment. And honestly... I mean, if you want to talk about behind-the-scenes stories, the behind-the-scenes story on that one is pretty gruesome. Um, I would, you know, tip my hat to Criterion because I'm sure that they would find a tasteful way to talk about it. Um, But I think the 1950s film that I would really love to see, um, you know, a substantive package on would be Picnic, um, which came up in our very first episode, our quote-unquote lost episode, which you can find with some clever Googling. Um, the hard Hollywood life of Kim Novak. So, and then Ben also wanted to know, uh, and just in general, what are some examples of films that you wish were more seen? Um, and then he also, he notes Wanda, the Barbara Loden movie Wanda, um, which I talked about on an episode of another podcast called The Cinephiliacs. Um, and Wanda is definitely an underseen film. It, again, not readily available on DVD. Um, but I think that, uh, that, you know, sort of opens up a discussion of all kinds of women's independent American cinema. Um, I think a lot of us probably feel like we hear about nothing but American independent cinema. Um, but the histories of the different periods of it, if, you know, like the early nineties or the, the quote unquote sort of mumblecore period, Um, they've all kind of been written by the winners. Um, you know, that people go back and they watch the Mark Duplass films because they know who Mark Duplass is. Um, uh, or, you know, they see tiny furniture because Lena Dunham has become pretty famous. Um, but in a lot of cases, there are a lot, a lot of other films that are playing at film, the same film festivals that those films played at, um, that are, in dialogue with the movies that do become famous and never get seen. Um, and a lot of them, you know, sadly are, end up being directed by women. Um, the, it's the female filmmakers who have a harder time kind of breaking through to that next level of success. Um, so I'm just going to name a few movies that are sort of hard to find um, that I hope people would 
you know, check out. One is Smithereens by Susan Seidelman, uh, Girlfriends by Claudia Weil, Lizzie Borden's Working Girls, um, and anything by Amy Simitz or Sophia Tikal. So thank you, Ben. I hope that that answers your questions. Okay, our next question is from Larry Harold, who played Orson Welles on our Rita Hayworth Orson Welles episode. And Larry asks, Can you name a movie that showed you what a movie can do for you or to you that a novel can't? Um, I tend to really love cinematic novels and novelistic films. So that is a difficult question um, because I'm interested in the interplay between the two forms. Um, But I do think that a great filmmaker will do things visually that uh, make you understand why something needs to be cinema rather than written on the page. Um, And the first example that pops to mind for me are the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, who is my favorite living filmmaker, and um, specifically something like The Master, which um, is a film full of mystery um, and ambiguity. And um, especially if you compare it to, you know, I think that that some people, when they saw that film, were expecting more of a traditional biopic about L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology. Um, and that's not what you get. You get something that is, you know, more of a, a dream or a nightmare vision of 1950s America and the post-war experience and post-traumatic stress and um, the idea of of getting into people's brains and controlling them um, and, and masculinity and male-male relationships um, and so many things and doing so much of it visually show, you know, I mean, in that sort of terrible film school adage of showing and not telling, um, but in always fascinating, mysterious ways. And I guess I'm thinking about it because of the recent um, documentary Going Clear, which is, you know, basically about the same subject matter. And I felt that uh, the director of that, Alex Gibney, was in some ways, in terms of his visual choices, um, maybe a little bit too influenced by the way the master approached um, what, what that history should look like. So thank you, Larry. Let's move on. Our next question, it's actually a set of questions that came in via email from Emily Edmond. Uh, Emily writes, first of all, I hope this is the correct email address to send you questions for the anniversary show. Yes, it is. Thank you, Emily. Second of all, yay. Yay, Emily. Thank you for writing. Third of all, book recommendations. I personally am interested in the ideologies of Hollywood, sex, gender, race, etc. Okay, um... Gosh, where to start? Well, I would say, first of all, start with the books of Janine Bassinger, who um, is a really great film historian who um, – she was somebody for me in graduate school who really made history feel accessible in a way that not a lot of people who write from a sort of academic place about cinema are able to do. Um, and the number one book by her that I would recommend is called A Woman's View – And I don't have it in front of me, but I believe the subtitle is How Hollywood Spoke to Women from 1930 to 1960. Um, And a lot of it has to do with um, the sort of secret messages that 
an audience of women would get from watching quote unquote women's films. Um, so, you know, like a typical thing is you have a movie where you have a career gal who's living an independent life for, you know, 70 minutes of an 80 minute movie. And then only in the last 10 minutes does she, you know, kind of, um, realize that she actually, uh, wants to have a more traditional life of being a family woman and being subservient to a man. Janine Bassinger talks a lot about how women could, you know, sort of forget about that last 10 minutes and like really hold on to this fantasy that was expressed in the first 70 minutes. So stuff like that is really fascinating. Um, in terms of race, uh, Richard Dyer's book White was a big thing for me um, when I was in graduate school. Um, but I think that I think that I'm sort of less interested in books that are specifically about these kinds of, uh, as Emily phrased it, ideological issues. Um, And I'm more interested in books that are about people's lives and their bodies of work where that stuff kind of comes into play um, as part of the fabric of their lives and work. But hope that's helpful. Um, Emily goes on, Fourth of all, how do you decide what topics you choose from the online forums to research and record? Is there a way we can make our suggestions more palatable to you? She asked selfishly. Oh, Emily, that's not selfish. Um, honestly, I I so far have used the forums as a way to kind of back up my own ideas. Um, if some, if I see that somebody else is posting about something that I've kind of thought about, um, then that says to me that there's interest in it. But I think going forward, um, especially after I finish the secret series that's coming up after the end of the Star Wars series, I'm going to be picking from the forums a lot more often. Um, and I guess the only thing that I would say in terms of suggestions that I can give you for how to you know, make your ideas more palatable to me um, is to just tell me what you're interested in about this idea. Like why why you think this person or this film or this period um, is worthy of me talking about for an hour. Like what, like what, what is it about it that interests you? Uh, fifth of all, Emily continues, the Lena Horn episode. It never occurred to me that black soldiers would get in trouble for having pictures of white stars in their lockers or in their bunks. Racism is so pervasive. And as a white woman, I am so ignorant. Oh, Emily. Thanks for keeping these episodes as critical as in critiquing as they are. Uh, you're welcome. Um, all I can say to that is that, I don't know, I guess over the past couple of years, I've come to understand to what extent um, Hollywood fil- Hollywood history, like a lot of history, <laughs> is often told from a white male point of view. And certainly if you were a person of color or a woman in the, a lot of these time periods we're talking about, um, your life was subject to a culture that unfolded from a white male point of view more often than not. And so I'm interested in what it felt like to just sort of be within that culture and, and not be of the dominant point of view of the culture. So that's why I tell those stories as much as possible. Um, I have nothing against white men (laughs) or their point of view or their experience, but um, I just think that there are other stories to tell that need to be told. So Thank you, Emily. Those were great questions. 
Okay, this is a series of three questions that come from Twitter, um, from one Twitter member, at Bassman underscore PhD. The first question is, if you could replace a canonized male director with an unappreciated female one, who would they be? Um, That's really tough because, I mean, it, it sort of depends on how you define the canon and then... I mean, female directors had so few opportunities before, you know, the late 70s, the 80s, and even so, even now, um, very few female filmmakers are able to create a body of work. Um, Maybe they do a couple of films or maybe they work mostly independently. Um, So it's really tough to to answer that question. but uh, I, love the, I love the work of Agnes Varda, of Claire Denis, Catherine Bigelow, Sofia Coppola. Um, I don't know that I would necessarily, you know, pick a man to replace with any one of these women. I just, I, I'd like to, I would like it for our conversations to encompass more women in general. Next question from the same person. Also, if you didn't have to worry about getting published, what director slash actor slash whoever would you want to write a book about? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I am currently pitching a couple of books, so we'll see. I might have a different answer for this question uh, a month from now than I do now. Um, But I can talk about a a pitch that I did a few years ago that went nowhere. Um, I I wrote a book, a very short book for Cayo de Cinema about George Lucas. And in doing that, I became really fascinated with the story of Marsha Lucas, who was George's wife. um, And she was a film editor and she edited um, uh, American Graffiti and uh, the first Star Wars film. She also worked with Martin Scorsese on Taxi Driver and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And one of my favorites, New York, New York. Um, And... She was credited by, you know, a few people who were close to Lucas with kind of giving him a narrative sensibility that he would not have had without her. Um, And then they divorced um, while he was making Return of the Jedi. Um, She had an affair with somebody who was working on the construction of Skywalker Ranch. Um, And she, after the breakup with Lucas, uh, she stayed with that guy and basically dropped out of filmmaking. Um, she did not continue to edit films um, unless she did so under an assumed ma- under an assumed name, and I just haven't been able to find a record of it. Um, but I just thought her story was fascinating, and I really connected to it in a lot of ways. And I thought that there might be a book in talking about her story, but also talking about the stories of some other women who were sort of around in that Easy Riders, Raging Bulls period, um, who were active working on these movies, but were also romantically involved with filmmakers, with male filmmakers. Um, So, you know, you have Sandy Weintraub, who was um, Martin Scorsese's girlfriend and producer of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Um, You have uh, Julia Phillips, of course. Um, You have Polly Platt and Sybil Shepard. You know, quite a few women. I wrote a book proposal. Um, Not only did it not go anywhere, but the responses that I got to it from agents and publishers were kind of misogynistic um, and in this weird way where it was almost like they were accusing me of pointing the finger at these women and like as though the only thing that was interesting about them was the ma- the men that – as though I was saying that the only thing that was interesting about them was the men that they were 
involved with when I was actually trying to say the opposite thing. Um, So I got really discouraged and I didn't do anything about it for a while. And then I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I actually started writing kind of a historical fiction novel um, about a character who is heavily inspired by Marshall Lucas. And then uh, after I was working on that for about six months, uh, my boyfriend, whose name is Ryan Johnson, who I've been with for several years, um, he was offered the chance to write and direct a Star Wars movie. And he is doing that. And uh, when he decided to do that, I decided to put what I was doing inspired by Marshall Lucas on hold because it just felt a little too close to home. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. I think about that. I don't think about doing it as a nonfiction book anymore. Um, I do think about sometimes doing podcast episodes about those women. Um, And I think a lot about the fictionalized version, um, which at this point is very fictionalized, I should say. It has more to do with, um, with film editing and with this sort of time period of the industry kind of changing, like opening up a little bit for the opportunity for people who are not in power to have a little bit of power. And then those people kind of consolidating power and creating a system that's more corporate than ever. So I'm interested in what it would be like to be a woman within that. Um, So I think about working on that sometimes, but I haven't really figured out a way to sort of do it that I feel good about in terms of my personal life. So that is a really honest answer to that question. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Okay, one last question from this person on Twitter. Uh, Bassman underscore PhD asks, okay, one last one. What's a novel that means a lot to you and why? Well, actually, this is related to what I was just talking about. Um, one of the other issues beyond like the conflict of interest in my personal life about writing about that time period is that I am a huge fan of Zeroville by Steve Erickson, which is, um, it, it, you know, it's, uh, it is a creative retelling of that time period in Hollywood history, but it is about the exact same time period. And it also is about a character who becomes a film editor. So I don't want to just, re, you know, I don't want to rewrite one of my favorite novels. Um, so that, that is a book that I, um, love and I suggest that anybody who has not read it reads it. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of other sort of Hollywood novels that I could mention that um, are meaningful to me. But I think maybe uh, a book that is not related to (laughs) the podcast at all that um, is uh, something that meant a lot to me when I read it several years ago is The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope. Um, You know, it's a big doorstop 19th century novel. Um, it has to do with the way social classes in England changed with the coming of the railroads. Um, and I read it on a vacation to the South of France, um, and just basically would like sit in the sun for eight hours a day, um, reading this, uh, not this novel written in very much not contemporary English. And I was completely fascinated by it. Um, and it changed so much about the way that I think about popular fiction and storytelling and epic storytelling. So I would recommend that if you have time to read a 900-page novel, you pick that one up. Okay, so we are just about out of time. So I'm going to answer one more question. 
This question is from Andrew Grant, um, who left a voicemail and asked me not to play it. So I'm going to summarize what he was saying in his voicemail, which was that he has been reading a biography on Bud Schulberg, and he wanted to know if I would ever do an episode about him and um, all of the stuff that his life encompasses, such as um, being the son of a studio mogul, um, the blacklist, screenwriting, et cetera, et cetera. And the answer is, I would love to do that. Um, I have thought about doing a series about the moguls. Um, I'm really fascinated by them. Oh, another novel that means something to me, although it is Hollywood-related, is um, F. Scott Fitzgerald's F. F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Last Tycoon, um, which I think is so fascinating and it's so heartbreaking that it is unfinished. Um, so yeah, definitely interested from the angle of moguls, but also I am definitely planning to do like a blacklist slash McCarthy uh, series, which is one of the reasons why, as you'll notice or have have noticed or may notice in uh, a lot of these episodes that deal with people in the 1940s, I kind of have to cut it off because there's another story to tell about them that has to do, um, you know, basically with the witch trials of uh, commie hunting that happened in the late 40s and 50s. So thank you, Andrew. Andrew and I used to be friends in New York City when we both lived there. He now lives in Berlin. Um, and so it's really good to hear from him. Um, that's it. That is all the questions that I have time to answer. Um, if I didn't get to your question, I apologize and feel free to hit me up on Twitter and I'll do the best I can. And thank you so much for listening to our anniversary show. I hope that we have another one one year from now. And, uh, you know, I hope that I can continue to produce podcast episodes that you want to listen to in the meantime. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was not written at all, but it was spoken and edited by Karina Longworth, which is me. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and please spread the word any way that you can. One good way to do that is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. We'll be back next week with another tale from The Secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Good times for a change. See the luck I had to make a good man bad. So please, please, please let me get what I You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. 
join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.